Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in this space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of CRE Exchange. I'm Cole Perry, your host and senior market analyst here at Altus Group, a leading provider of asset and fund intelligence. I'm joined by Omar Elterai, our U.S. Director of Research, and we're excited to have a special guest interview today. We're joined by Conrad Madsen, a uh, co-founder and power partner at Paladin Partners out of Dallas. So Conrad has represented some of the largest corporations and institutional players in the space, with over 60 million square feet transacted in over 150 cities. He specializes in industrial tenant representation, development leasing, investment and corporate services consulting, and advises clients worldwide on forecasting market conditions and trends. Uh, Beyond what's already been an impressive career in CRE, he's been recognized as a commercial real estate influencer, uh, inducted as a Texas in commercial real estate by RED News, and is very active with supporting several charities through the Paladin Partners Foundation and his company's give back business model. So Conrad, welcome, and uh, it's very good to have you on with us. Omar, how about you kick us off? Fantastic. Conrad, really great to speak with you again. From a walk-on as a Red Raider at Texas Tech to nearly a decade at Lee & Associates to founding Paladin Partners in 2014, you've really had a quite distinctive career and career path, one which I think is quite Texan, not only in location, but also style. So what drew you to commercial real estate in the first place? By the way, that was an unbelievable intro. I don't think anybody else has done anything quite that over the top. I don't think I'm any of those things that you guys said, but I appreciate all the the kind remarks. What led me to real estate? A couple things. My grandmother was in residential real estate growing up, so I always saw her showing homes, selling land to developers, things of that nature. So it was around, that was my first like really introduction into being around real estate was just being around my grandmother. And and God bless her. I think she sold real estate until she was about 85 or so. She's still with us today. And I think she's 93 or 94. So she had a long career in the residential side of things. Don't know if I, I think it was one of those kids out of college that really didn't know what he wanted to do in the real world. It took me a little time before I, I found my way, which I tell a lot of young kids now that are in college. I'm like, hey, you know, it's okay if you don't really know where you're supposed to be headed. If just get out there and experience the world and, and you'll figure out your way. And that's how I got into commercial real estate. I moved to Dallas. I was born and raised in a very small town in deep South Texas. And then after graduation, I, I moved to Dallas and I was a recruiter or a headhunter for about three years, which taught me tremendous phone skills. I was making 100, 150 phone calls a day and learned all about what a cold call was. Like growing up in a small town, I had no idea what that was. And I just so happened to live in an apartment complex that was connected to an office building in Dallas-Fort Worth, one of the first mixed-use developments called Addison Circle. And they shared um, a gym. And every day in my 20s, I was a little slimmer than, than I am now, I was living in the gym. 
And it just so happened to be where Roger Stahlback's corporate headquarters was of the Stahlback company was in that office building. And so I saw all these brokers at the Stahlback company in the gym every single day. And I just saw, they just oozed success. The way they carried themselves, the way they dressed. I even saw Roger a few times in the gym and I had to pick my jaw up off the floor because back in my day, he was the equivalent to Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes today, right? Captain America was the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys in the 70s. And, and, and so, but seeing those brokers, seeing them, that led, that was what piqued my interest in the industry. Asked one of the brokers out to lunch Afterwards, they took me up to uh, their offices, passed me up and down the hallway. And the gentleman that, that was there gave me time. And the gentleman's name's Tom McCarthy. And I actually ran into Tom yesterday at the NAOP event, gave him a big hug. And Tom, Tom gave me time and he gave me advice. And he didn't know me from Adam. And, but by him helping point me in the right direction of breaking into this industry, here I am 23 years later. And, have a career that I probably never really dreamed of as a kid from just small town, South Texas. So that's and, how I got it. That's how it all kind of started. I love that. And what, so what were, once you got started, what were some of the big milestones that you could, you can share once you were already in the industry? Yeah. I think, listen, the first, what's funny is the first couple of years are always tough for any commercial real estate broker, rarely do you come in and have immediate success. It's a long sales cycle. There's a lot of relationships that are built over years or decades to gain clients, whether that's on the tenant rep side or representing landlords or doing capital markets transactions. Don't happen overnight. I tell you, the one thing that, that I grew up with was just like, I understood the value of hard work. And, and that work ethic that I think is learned sometimes in a lot of small towns, honestly, because it's a lot of blue collar people working on farms and ranches and things of that nature. And life is, is challenging. And so I tried to take that same approach through my sports career and just growing up where I did, just going all in on commercial real estate and, and working long days, long hours. Back in those days, you had to come in to the office physically to get anything done. And so I'd be up there on the weekends just getting after it, turning over rocks and, and knocking on a lot of doors and making a lot of phone calls. It's a numbers game and, and you'll get lucky enough and deals will happen. And, and so that's what happened over time. You start off with smaller deals and then those progressed to 100,000 square foot deals. I remember when I did my first deal, like over 400,000 square feet, I was like, man, this is real. And then you start seeing those commissions that you can earn and you're like, boy, this can be a lucrative business. I would tell you that it wasn't something that was just instant success. There was a lot of losing, but I love to use this phrase even today. It's you don't sharpen your sword by winning, right? You sharpen your sword by losing. And so all those losses that added up over the years made me a better broker, better person, and allowed me to continue to grow. And I think that's the most important part about life in general is you just got to keep growing every single day and put yourself in uncomfortable situations and you'll eventually be comfortable in those situations. 
And it, it seems so that persistence and that growth has accumulated to you being able to claim the show having transacted over 60 million square feet in over 150 cities across the globe. And despite those are very impressive stats, but you also have an enormous presence in the industrial market in Texas. So is there any particular reason why Texas and why industrial? Well, it's interesting how I got into the industrial space. And, and I love to tell this story because one, I wasn't born and raised here in Dallas, right? So I didn't have, I had zero network here. And I felt when I had interviewed at a lot of different firms, office was the darling back in those days. And those were where the big fees were and, and users were taking huge blocks of space and, and all those things. But I just didn't feel like as a guy who grew up blue collar, it was too hoity-toity for me, if you will, right? And the industrial world just seemed a little more like my people that I grew up around. And so that's how I stumbled in the industrial world. And then What's interesting, probably until the last, I don't know, five to seven years, industrial's kind of always been the ugly duckling. Let's be honest, right? Like it's a square box. There's nothing fancy about it. There's not a lot of them that look super beautiful, right? But over time with the advent of e-commerce and now we have this trend of moving manufacturing out of China or and the Far East back to the States, it's gone from the ugly duckling to the white swan. It's probably the most in-demand asset class out there, other than at this current time, data centers are bursting at the seams, but industrial has now become one of the most sought-after asset class for all the institutional capital out there. And I would have never dreamed that 10, 15 years ago. But now all the kids that are coming out of college and they want to get in the industry and they sit there and across from me and they go, man, I really want to get industrial. I'm like, this was never like 10 years ago. I never <laughs> talked. I never talked to kids that go, man, industrial is where I want to be. <laughs> Think about it. All the kids right now that are getting out of school, they've bought everything on their phone, right? They don't really go to the malls anymore. Like I did as a kid to go to Foot Locker to get my new sneakers. They order them online. They don't like them. They do the shipping return label and they ship them back, right? Kids understand now that are coming out of college, industrial is where it's at and where it's growing because they know that those shoes or shirts or whatever the product was got to them from a warehouse somewhere. Makes total sense. I think that's absolutely like a, that's a trend that is, has been happening, but no real signs of any sort of slowing. And let me head on a little bit more about Texas and DFW, why Texas and I could spend an hour on this, but I'll hit the hot notes, right? A central time zone, no state income tax, center of the whole United States, cheaper labor, less restriction, government restrictions here to set up businesses, and so on and so forth. And all from an industrial perspective, all the logistics hubs meet here, right? All the railroads come here, all of our airports that are, I think, DFW number two in the world busiest airport, all the interstates, I-35 that runs from north to south of the middle of the United States, and then I-20, which kind of connects the whole east and west coast, runs right through here, intermodal yards. All those factors make Dallas such a hub for logistics. And our inventory now is approaching, or is that close to in the next quarter, will be about a billion square feet of industrial space in Dallas-Fort Worth. You look at Houston, and Houston only has 500,000 from a population 
population perspective, is only slightly smaller than DSW. And it's even a port city, which typically drives a lot of industrial. And Houston has 600 million square feet of inventory, and Dallas Fort Worth has a billion, right? It shows you just because of those railroads, interstates, its location, all those things from a logistics perspective. It just makes all the sense in the world. The other thing that's what's interesting is the year of numbers just came out. And if you talk to most people in 23, everybody was down. It's not a good year. There's just like a black cloud hanging over everybody. What's it going to be? Did we overbuild again? Where are rates going? All those type of things. And the numbers just came out and we had 9 million square feet of positive net absorption in the fourth quarter. It put us at 31 million for the year, which was the third best all time other than the two previous years. So it even surpassed what we were doing pre-pandemic. So that just shows you, even in a year where everybody was just, man, the tenant demand is quite, it isn't quite there. The e-commerce boom and really the manufacturing boom is real. Almost a 1.5 million square foot speculative building in South Dallas got leased to a Chinese solar company. They're going to build a $200 million solar manufacturing facility. Guess what? Now, every supplier or customer of those guys is now going and gobbling up space all around them. And it's just, it's those continued influx of companies that continue to look to Texas because of all the economic benefits of it, cost of doing business and labor and all those other things that I mentioned earlier, that just continues to come here. And then beyond that, we're on Mexico's front doorstep. Everything that's not coming to the States from a manufacturing perspective, it's cheaper goods. Now it's going to Mexico and Mexico now is cheaper on a labor rate perspective than China because of their aging workforce population in China. And then you get rid of the problem of going across the whole Pacific Ocean and then sitting outside of a port for 90 days to unload from these Mexican border towns and call it seven to 10 hours. Those guys in a day's truck drive can be to Dallas-Fort Worth to put it into a distribution center and then on to their final customer. We saw the pitches of the supply chain problem that happened during COVID and Corporate America has now shipped in that manufacturing back to the U.S. and or Mexico. And we're just, we're on the front doorstep of it. Connor, I think we've got a few questions later in the podcast for you about industrial trends, but that was, that was a fantastic overview. I think we heard a little bit about you, about what you do. You have any interest in giving us an overview of what Paladin does and why you thought about starting your own brokerage? For sure. Paladin is what I like to say, just all things, at least now, we're hopeful to open some other divisions over time. But right now, we're just all things industrial, right? Whether it's representing tenants, whether it's representing landlords, whether it's you know doing capital markets transactions of buildings, whether it's land assemblages for some of the institutional capital partners, it's all those things. Anything that touches industrial, we try to be involved in. We're real big on being street brokers, right? And understanding sub-markets. Every single guy in our office specializes in a particular area of DFW, and they learn that market cold. And a variety of opportunities will come available, right? Whether it's representing those tenants, those landlords, selling maybe a capital markets transaction, selling land, all those things. I've always used the phrase, experts earn more. And at DFW, 
you have to be hyper-focused because it's so competitive here. In a smaller tertiary town, upstate New York, where you got you guys are in New York City, but upstate New York or out west Texas, you can do a little bit of everything. But when you're in a big metro like Dallas, not only do you got to specialize in an asset class, you got to specialize in a certain area of town or you'll just get crushed. Is there anything other than that like local specialization that you would say differentiates Paladin from its peers? My biggest deal is going above and beyond for clients, right? We own this company. So to me, I'm looking at the long game, not just chasing single transactions. I want to do jobs that blow the doors off clients. They're like, man, where else can these guys help us? And that's how I got all my exposure on national business was doing a great job locally. And then I just asked the question, where else can I help you? Oh, you do stuff outside of Dallas? Oh, we got a facility in Chicago, New Jersey and LA. And that's just how it grew to where I did deals all across the globe, really. And but also going back to why do you start Paladin? I think this variety of factors. You get exposure to different brokerage firms and you talk to enough people and you take, okay, these guys did this and these guys did this. They don't really do this. They don't do this. I think we can build a better system. And if we do all those things, we can win more business. And I was always I got passionate about the foundation and give back platform over the last decade. And I wanted to incorporate that into our business plan. We give a percentage out of every single transaction we do back to different charitable partners as part of our give back. And quite frankly, that just cannot occur at a lot of other firms, right? They're just, no, we need that capital for, that's for stock. Like we got to have our stock price up as high as possible. We got too many mouths to feed or whatever the case may be, right? And, And so to me, that was big on starting Paladin so that we could create a kind of culture of giving and wanting to help others. And and that permeates the organization. If you probably ask any of our brokers what Paladin is about today, they'd probably tell you we're in business to impact other people's lives. And that's the truth. Fantastic. The give back model is fascinating. And I think it's quite inspiring as well. Would you speak to the Paladin Partners Foundation? Yeah. So we started the foundation a few years ago, and basically it was a way to take those commissions, like put them into a foundation, and then give them back to different organizations that we are passionate about. And what we try to do is basically have every broker here that's passionate about something, whether they might be on the board of something or they might be passionate about a certain research place or cancer or whatever the case may be. I want what we're donating to be stuff that we're all collectively passionate. And one of the things that we do every year is we do this Christmas gift deal for the single mother's neighborhood that's up in Oklahoma. One of our brokers, she grew up in that neighborhood, right? She has a personal connection with that. It's, we now load up a big old U-Haul with a ton of presents, and we brighten the days of all these families that are less fortunate. And there's a variety of other ones, veterans, children, cancer research that we donate to. My goal is to try to start, I'm going to try to have a massive gala here at DFW later this year, which you guys are going to be invited to. And you're going to be able to dress in Western attire, so you'll have to get your cowboy hats and boots. And I'm going to probably have it over in the Fort Worth stockyards. And the goal is to raise a bunch of money for the foundation that's then going to get back to different charitable causes. We're going to have a big band and a big banquet hall that we're going to put it in. And I've got numerous commercial real estate companies that have already said, we want to sponsor it. And several hundred of people who have already said, 
I bet, you know, from all over. And that's just how crazy social media, we haven't really even touched on that, but social media has changed my life over the last four or five years. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll certainly be there when we get the invite. But turning a little bit to the real meat of our conversation, you talked a little bit about DFW, your perspective on the market there. Turn it to the rest of the U.S. What do you think are the big kind of key trend drivers? You mentioned that your goal is to expand outside Texas, perhaps even into some other markets. What do you think those next kind of big markets are going to be? Well, and this kind of goes back to a lot of the capital folks that I talk to. I'm big on what they call the smile or the sunshine states, right? The south and up to the Carolinas and even over to California. I don't know if I'd personally put money in California. Nevada, yeah, maybe as well. But listen, my whole deal is if there's ever the right people out there, I'll look at expansion of opening up more Paladin offices. But right now I'm more focused on trying to grow Paladin with great people, putting together a lot more kind of principal and development type deals with different either family office or institutional capital. And so that might eventually take us to other states. But you look at the phenomenal things that are happening in Florida, you can't ignore anywhere that's having a positive net migration in this country. You can't ignore why you would not want to invest in real estate in those areas, whether that be multifamily, industrial, even the ugly duckling today office, right? It works in the right locations. And retail, as much as retail gets bashed on, retail in general is doing really well because they haven't bought, they haven't developed any new retail in the last five to 10 years, right? Because retail, everybody's been talking about e-commerce has taken over. So retailers have shrunk, right? And all those other things, but we they also haven't been building a ton of power centers. And because of that, you have low availability. And actually for the first time now, you're seeing a lot of lease rate appreciation on the retail sector. And to me, that's if I'm placing money or I'm looking to expand, it's in those areas that really have positive net migration. That's where I'm looking. And turning to specifically to industrial, are there any subsectors within industrial that you see either outperforming or underperforming in the coming years, whether that be manufacturing, distribution, or iOS has gotten a lot of attention recently as well? Yeah, iOS has gotten a lot of attention. I think there's certainly a need there. I think it's gotten more attention because it's gotten institutionalized for the first time over the last few years. It was very much a lot of stuff that was owned by mom and pops. And now all these institutional capital players have been jumping into that space and gobbling up. And listen, I think a lot of them could be great land sites eventually for new industrial development, right? Especially if they're what I call infield locations, infield or outfield. So if you got a well-located site that's infield, at the end of that lease, you might go, man, this is more valuable for us to go vertical and build a brand new industrial building on it than just continue to collect rent from some guys parking trailers everywhere. So I understand the iOS game. I think it got a little oversaturated, candidly. I think some guys probably overbought and the demand isn't quite there. But I know that really depends on where it is and the availabilities and all those other things. Yeah, manufacturing's obviously massively happening right now. So the trend for a lot of developers today is to make sure that they have significant power available to these sites and trying to have that power day one or at least more power than your competitors might win you a deal for a manufacturing type scenario. 
So power's becoming more of a player, I would say, than before. Because it's funny, if you go out and you talk to these economic development folks all over DFW or Texas, for that matter, five years ago, if you asked them, tell me the top 10 industrial transactions you're chasing right now, nine of those 10 were logistics in nature, distribution centers. If you ask them that same question today, probably seven to eight of those are now manufacturing out of that 10. So that shows you right there the trend of the onshoring back to the United States. And it just, corporate America never moves quickly, right? And I think, you know, and I don't want to get political, but Trump was the first one that kind of called out China and started incentivizing corporations to move manufacturing back to the States. And so I think Fortune 500 started analyzing during that time. And then we had COVID happen. And then the supply chain got broke and put a lot of these companies in a pickle. And that really accelerated, okay, we have to move manufacturing back to the States and or Mexico because we can't have this happen in the future. And I think that's probably the biggest segment that's changing. E-commerce has gone from Pre-COVID was about 14, 15% of total retail sales. Now it's roughly about 20 or 21%. It rose pretty quickly because of the pandemic and it captured a lot of generations, the baby boomers and the older folks that maybe weren't buying online. Now I've realized like how easy it is. So it's grown, but think about that. It's still only 20%. Now we know it's never going to be to hundred percent. You're still going to get your haircut somewhere. You still want to go eat at a restaurant. So service-related stuff is always still going to have physical location. But look at how much e-commerce could still has to grow, is what I'm saying. What's it going to look like in another 10, 15 years? Are we going to be up to 40% of total retail? I don't know that answer, but it just shows you the e-commerce sector and then the manufacturing. Those were two sectors that were not around in 2009 when we had our last downturn. And now those two factors are continuing to fuel this sector, even in what I would call a depressed economic environment, mainly because of Wall Street and the rate hikes. And so if that's how I would say investment and the capital is evolving in this space, have you seen any changes in terms of the occupier needs in this space that are, I would say, changing the market and changing what owners have to essentially equip their properties with or offer up? It's certainly evolving, right? The industrial buildings over time, when I got in the business, they were 24 foot clear, right? And they were just starting to build to 30 and 32. Then the trend was to build the 36 foot clear. And this is all because we could get more cubic feet inside of a warehouse and a smaller footprint. So we're actually, what's crazy is industrial developers were smart. They would pay on the cubic foot, not the square foot. Right. Because the reality is it costs more to build higher. There's more infrastructure. Right. And now the trend is 40 foot clear. And the reason we're going higher is now the lift trucks are more sophisticated. They're more stable where they can go up high. Okay. So now, so we're building buildings higher. We're building deeper truck courts. We're building buildings now with a lot of trailer storage because that's very important. The power thing I mentioned the other day is important. Now, some guys are even insulating the roofs thicker so that they're staying cooler inside those warehouse spaces. There is a lot of talk about EV and, and charging and trying to dedicate some areas of truck courts to 
electric charging because I think honestly the automated car business is going to be bigger in the logistics sector than it is in the commercial sector or what have you. Because one, we already have a shortage of truck drivers. And two, we're talking about very long, easy routes with not a lot of turns. And so these computers will be able to accommodate the 18-wheeler that's leaving the port of LA and just needs to get out to I-20 and he's all the way to Dallas, right? And he only has to make a few exits along the way. There is a lot of talk about that because that's going to be real. It is here, but it's in a very elementary stage and I know it's coming. So that's definitely going to be something that are going to have to happen at a lot of your facilities is have having charging stations and things of that nature for the electric 18-wheeler trucks. Conrad, we're in a new year, right? We just started 2024. You've already been talking about some major trends, you think, beyond this year. But what is your forecast for 2024? Do you think industrial performance can continue to ride this wave for the last few years? What do you think? Maybe that's even for DFW or Texas or or the U.S. kind of writ large. I'm cautiously optimistic, right? There's some external factors that we can't control. What's going on in the Middle East right now? What's going on in Ukraine, Iran, things of that nature? Saying that we have a stable international situation over the next year, I'm optimistic that we're still going to have another good year. That because of what the numbers I saw last year, I don't really see any slowdown and any reasons to slow down. And being here in Texas, I always say all the time, we're the last one in, the first one out of these recessions. All I can do is look back on my career and say, you know what? 09 was terrible. And it was terrible for everybody. But by 2010 in Dallas, Fort Worth, I was earning the same type of money that I was making in six, seven, and eight. There's a lot of my friends that were on both coasts that couldn't really say that till probably 13, but they were just down longer because things just weren't happening as swiftly there. And I think when we in Dallas, Fort Worth, we have 350 to 400 people move here every single day. And that never only seems to continue to grow every year as it's crazy, but literally some weeks I go, wait, did I not see a new headquarters announcement this week? Like I feel cheated. That's how it literally has felt like over the last few years. We've become the darling of so many new, huge corporate relocations or regional headquarters. Goldman's building a huge new campus here that's bringing, I think, 1,500 workers from the Northeast down here. And so I just, I guess in summary, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think it could be a good year. The only headwinds I I truly see out there is the debt maturity of a lot of commercial real estate, not so much on the industrial side, but mainly on the office side. And the reality is all these lenders and capital providers, most of them are all cross-collateralized in all asset class. And could the office sector bring down all the sectors from a valuation perspective because of all the debt maturities that we have. And I think there's more bank failures ahead. I think we put a little band-aid on them. But you talk to enough people, and you guys are in this space, you talk to enough people in that valuation market and guys that track debt and loans, it's a big number. And there's a lot of banks trying to get their arms around it all and figure out their values and what they got. There still could be some choppy waters ahead in the capital markets world, but I just thought we had a pretty bad capital markets world this past year and industrial still performed unbelievably here in Texas. 
I think I'm a believer now that <laughs> it's just not due to manufacturing and the continued growth of e-commerce and the continued net migration here. I just don't know if I'm ever going to see a really huge downturn again in this space. Yeah, we had a good conversation with Stephen Bushbaum from TREP a few weeks ago, and I think he shares a lot of those sentiments about the maturity wall. And so good to see how these conversations all come up against one another or with each other, rather. But turning our attention, I wouldn't say away from industrial, but blowing it up towards all of CRE. How do you see the industry changing in the next, let's say, three to five years? What are some of the big things? Is that artificial intelligence? Is there something that nobody's talking about yet? What do you think that might be? Man, those are people probably a lot smarter than I am, candidly, but I do see the value of AI. It's crazy, honestly. As a guy who spent, I was telling the story yesterday to somebody, I post a lot on social media and I've always made it a fact to always be like me pumping out there. Like I wrote it. There's a lot of guys who hire robots and do all the other stuff about data. The other day I was making a post and LinkedIn gave me an option. It's have AI write it. And I was like, huh, I clicked on it and I reread it and I was like, man, that is better than what I said. And so then I went back and I changed a few things and I added a little more Conrad spin to the article. But that for the first time was like, boy, look how awesome that was, right? I can't imagine being a journalist who has to do that for a living. They have to live on AI. That's freaking incredible, right? And so you're seeing the effects of AI boost all these hyperscalers in this explosion or we're seeing on the data center side of things. DFW, again, is probably the number two market behind Northern Virginia in terms of data centers in the world. And there's a lot of that coming online because of really all this new AI technology that's coming and self-driving cars, all those other things. So I think it's an important component. I still think that commercial real estate in general is a very relationship type business. Are brokers going to go away? I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe I think I'll be in the ground before that happens. But I do think if you're a broker and you're not embracing technology, whether that's having a great CRM system or marketing or using videography or using social media, which I've hit on a little bit, you're going to be left. You need to be embracing it a little bit or your peers are going to pass you up. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's some of the stuff that we hear too. But Conrad, we like to ask all our guests the same question. And that is, if you think about all these changes coming to CRE, but some are not happening fast enough, you could snap your fingers right now. Any change to the industry could come right now. What would that be for you? Jerome Powell to reverse all those hikes that he did back in 22. So if Jerome could just take those seven or eight he did in a row and kind of at least, hey, Jerry, just at least give us three or four back of those seven or eight that you did to us. That's caused a lot of pain in the capital market sector, which fuels a lot of these transactions, which fuels a lot of all the largest brokerage firms. But let's just look beyond that. Like, I can't imagine being a residential real estate agent the last two years, right? Boy, unless you have significantly wealthy families and you're buying all cash. There is nobody trading 3% debt for seven or eight today. So that stagnation that was caused by the rate hikes, and we all know residential real estate is one of the drivers of the economy. Everything that that sector touched from lending to title companies to contractors and builders, every piece of material that goes into a house. 
So do I think we're ever going to get back to where money is is 0% like it was? No. And it's probably a good thing, but I think we've got to figure out that happy medium to really get the economy and commercial real estate flying again. Because right now there's just no institutional capital. It's still, it's sitting on the sidelines. If you look at all the capital markets transactions last year, it's really private wealth is the guys who've been acting and institutional capital has been sitting on the sidelines. Excellent answer. And I would regret not asking you before we sign off here, but you're really big on social media. Where can, for our listeners, where can they find you, follow you? Where do you post all your stuff? Yeah, for sure. I'm most active on LinkedIn. To me, that's just main and main from a business perspective. I'm active on Twitter and Instagram, but to me, those are more like having fun, playful type stuff. Whereas I truly feel like LinkedIn's the business world. So I'm real active on LinkedIn. I have a monthly newsletter I've sent out. So if you just look up Conrad Madsen, M-A-D, S-E-N. I think it's LinkedIn. I think it's just my first and last name put together. I'm pretty easy to find. You can sign up for my newsletter there. You can send me an email. If you send me a message, I will certainly respond and be happy to chat and do anything else for you. Fantastic. Conrad, I think that is all the time we've got today. I do want to thank you for being here with us and to talk all things industrial and CRE. Omar, I look forward to speaking with you next week on another episode of CRE Exchange. Thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.